I was doing a conference uh, called The Grace of Law. The Grace of Law was the name of the conference. And it was, uh, it was a, it's a provocative title if you think about it for a moment. It's an excellent title, but it's a, it's a provocative one. And, uh, and that's because we are, I think, so very a- accustomed to dichotomizing the, the law and grace in our minds. We see them as entirely opposed to one another, and with good reason. Uh, a proper understanding of the gospel by which we're saved hinges upon properly distinguishing law from grace, and with respect to the grounds of our acceptance before God. You know, Galatians 2.16, that by the works of the law, we, we know that no flesh will be justified. Um, the commandment, Paul says in, in Romans 7, the commandment, which was, was to result in life for me, I found to be unto death. It killed me. The commandment that was supposed to be unto life actually came and killed me. Paul says that we've become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that we should be joined to another, to Christ, that we might bear fruit for God, Romans 7. And in Romans 6, 14, we have this categorical, categorical declaration that you, you are not under law, but under grace. And of course, that great verse that, that funded the Reformation in a real sense, Romans 3.28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so, because we are consistently and rightly taught that the law is no help to us in justification, no help in earning our acceptance with God, no help in gaining a standing before God that whereby He says, you are permitted to come into my presence, you have a relationship with me because your standing is legally righteous. Because we know that the law does not do that for us, we contend to look down on the law in our minds. The law gets a bad rap. But as Paul says in Romans 7, it's not the fault of the law that it, re- that it results in our condemnation. He says, no, the law, Romans seven twelve is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. He asks, was then that which, would, would, was then that which is good made a cause of death unto me? No, God forbid, may it never be, but sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good. Sin took the opportunity through the commandment and killed me. So it's sin, not the law, that is properly the efficient cause of our destruction. The law is holy, Paul says. The law is just. The law is good. And indeed, the law of God is the delight of the child of God. So, in the second verse of Psalm 1, we learn that the blessed man is the one whose delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law does he meditate day and night. It's not just someone, it's not just the one who meditates on the law, diligently reading and studying, but it's the one who delights in the law that is called the blessed man. Jeremiah says in chapter 15, verse 16, your words were found and I ate them. And your word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, the delight of my heart. 
And David, in, in Psalm 119, I, I think David wrote Psalm 119. There's debate about that, but I say it's David. David, in Psalm 119, wrote in verse 16, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. In verse 24, your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Verse 35 of Psalm 119, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 77, let your, may your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Psalm 119, 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than the honey to my mouth. Psalm 119, verse 72 says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And in verse 127, he says, therefore, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Now, how is it that David could speak so profusely in praise of the law, the law that killed him? I mean, this, this is probably not excluding the other genres of God's Word. Law here probably represents a broader category of the Word of God in general, but it's called the law and therefore certainly does not exclude the Torah. It does not exclude the Pentateuch, those, those first five books of the Bible in which God revealed His commandments for the instruction of His people. This was the law. This was the very law that shut David up under sin. This was the law that condemned him and killed him and testified to him of his condemnation and told him that he could no, in no way meet God's standard and that he had no hope of salvation or reconciliation with God whatsoever by his own deeds. How can a man who's so killed by the law say those things about the law? How can he delight in the law of Yahweh? And the answer is that David was regenerate. David was born again by the grace of God through the working of the Holy Spirit, David had experienced the new birth about which the prophet Jeremiah spoke when he promised that he would put his law within us and write his law upon our hearts. Not merely in the tablets of stone from Sinai, but in our hearts. It's what God promised through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, verse, verses 25 to 27, when he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So you see, in, in David's case... And in the case of every one of us who has been saved 
by grace through faith in Christ, in, in, in the gospel by which we are made new. The law was no longer merely an external commandment that demonstrated how far short of God's righteousness that David fell. No, as a consequence of regeneration, of this putting the law within our hearts, of giving us a new heart, taking out the heart of stone, putting in the heart of flesh, the law has become a gracious gift of God that guides us. It becomes a rule of life that keeps us from God's chastening and lights the way to His blessing. And so it's right for us to speak of the grace of law. Now, of course, we must distinguish between law and grace so that we don't conceive of the gospel as that by which God gives sinners an easier law to follow in order to lay hold of eternal life. It's not as if, well, the law of Moses was pretty hard, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take that out of the way, but here's another list of commandments that you have to do. Even if that list of commandments was merely too long, repent and believe. It's not the same thing. The gospel is not, let's reduce all the commandments of the law to two things, and now obey this easier law, and then God will reward you with righteousness. No. We do not say that the gospel is a new law to be obeyed, in which obedience is merely replaced with faith, which nevertheless still functions as the ground of our righteousness. Why are you saved? Because I believed. Well, well, I I understand that that's the instrument through which you laid hold of righteousness, but what's the basis of that righteousness? If you stand before God and say, you owe me heaven because I believed, what's your faith in? Your faith is in your faith. Your faith becomes the ground of your righteousness, and you have no hope because on any given day, you would admit, I would hope, that your faith is imperfect. And so if faith is the ground of your righteousness, if faith is simply uh, the second of of, of a new law, repent and believe, then you better repent perfectly and believe perfectly because that's the ground of your righteousness. And to the degree that you don't do that, you're not righteous. No, but that's not what it is. That's what we call neonomianism big, long word. You've heard of the term antinomianism, against the law. Neonomianism just means a new law. The gospel is conceived as a new law to obey. But faith is not the ground of our justification. Christ's righteousness, Christ's obedience is the ground of our justification. Faith, our faith in His work, is merely the instrument of justification. It's the empty hand, that, the, the channel by which we lay hold of the substance of Christ's own work on our behalf. But, given that that's the case, with respect to the law as a rule of life, we must see that there is grace in the law. There is no grace in the law with respect to our justification. But those who are justified, those who are being sanctified, we approach the law as a rule of our life, as the revelation of God's will for our lives, and that is a gracious gift from God. It's a gracious gift of God to reveal His mind to us in order to direct our steps. 
And surely that's what David had in mind in Psalm 119, verse 29, when he says, Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. Graciously grant me your law. That's what Moses says when he says that the nation's obedience to the law in Deuteronomy 4 verse 6, is there wisdom before all the nations? Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6 says, so keep and do these commandments. Keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this nation This great nation is a wise and understanding people, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or, Deuteronomy 4, 8, what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? What nation has a law so righteous as this? What nation has a God so near them as to give them this kind of a law and guide them to true holiness and wisdom? You see, the law is a privilege, even to the nation of Israel. It would be no mark against the justice of God to judge all peoples by the moral standard of His own character and not reveal that standard to them in His law. God is who He is. Therefore, righteousness is what righteousness is. And by virtue of our being the creatures of God, we are beholden to His justice. By virtue of being creatures, we must be as God is. We must live according to His character. And He is under no obligation to tell us what He's like in His Word because He's, he's told us what He's like in the creation. And He's told us what He's like by writing the law in our hearts on our conscience. He's already revealed Himself in creation and conscience. But the fact that He goes beyond that, the fact that He doesn't leave us guessing at the standard of moral righteousness, but instead reveals His mind and directs our steps out of the path of judgment and into the path of blessing, is grace. It is kindness. It's mercy. We will be judged, and we would have been judged by the character of God on the, on the final day. And yet God has been so kind to reveal the standard of His own character by which He'll judge us. The law exposes sin in our lives that we wouldn't otherwise see. Paul says, I wouldn't have even known what it means to covet if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet, Romans 7, 7. And to be warned of danger that would have otherwise escaped our notice and led to our destruction is grace. The law reinforces our need for grace by showing us how far far short we fall of the standard of God's holiness. You know, without the law, we might fool ourselves into thinking that, hey, we're not all that bad, you know? I mean, sure, we may not be perfect, but we're we're more conscientious than the next person. And, you know, after a while, we start flattering ourselves into thinking we're pretty good people. It would be, it'd be right for God to reward us with salvation. 
and we'd sink into the destruction that belongs to the self-righteous. But the law shows us how utterly helpless we are and how foolish an ocean that would be, and how if we are to have any hope of fellowship with God, it must be by His grace. To be shown such a thing is gracious. And not only that, but the law's threats of punishment for disobedience remind us of the penalty of sin from which we have been freed through the gospel. I mean, you open to Exodus 19 and 20, and you read of the thunder and the lightning and the smoke from Mount Sinai. You read of the God who is a consuming fire. You open to Numbers 16, and you see the ground swallow Korah and his, and his fellow rebellers up into the earth. You go to Genesis 6 and see God flood the earth because every imagination, every intent of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. You go to Genesis 19 and see God rain hell out of heaven because He takes the sin of mankind so seriously. And to be reminded, well, and then you go to Exodus uh, 13 and 14 and see the world's greatest superpower be drowned in the sea. Because God desired to deliver his, peop- his peop- deliver his people from oppression and from slavery. Look at God's judgment in the law. And then look at Deuteronomy 23, which tells us that cursed is any man who, who hangs on a tree. Look at, at, at the other, at the, is it Deuteronomy 27, which says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the words of the book of this law to do them. Cursed, judged, condemned. Look at all the judgments that then fell upon Christ, our substitute, our ark, to use the language of Genesis 6, our scapegoat, the ransom price, the one hung upon a tree in our place. And we see the severity of the judgment that we have been delivered from by Christ The law then cultivates a love in our hearts for God's kindness to us in rescuing us from such consequences. And when we see that, that further empowers and fuels our obedience. Brothers and sisters, I I, I wonder, I ask you, do you see the law of God as a gracious gift that has been granted to us? Do you delight in the law as the psalmist did? Can you, can you open your Bibles to Psalm 119 any given morning and sing with integrity, Oh, how I love your law. And mean by it, not merely the Word of God in the New Testament that tells us all about the grace of the gospel, but the Word of God in the Old Testament that discovers our sin, that makes us hopeless, and that testifies to the judgment that we deserve. How sweet are your words to my taste. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Is that our testimony? Can you testify to such things with integrity? In the 19th chapter and 7th section of both the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, the divines said that the present uses of the law for the believer are not, quote, not contrary 
to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. I'll say it again. The, the present uses of the law for the believers, so this is not the unbeliever who still is, is destitute of the righteousness of Christ. It's not the unbeliever who has still uh, got the heart of stone without the heart of flesh written or, or replaced and the law of God written on his heart. Not the one who is not yet born again, but to the born again believer in Jesus, the, the uses of the law are not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. Freely and cheerfully. And it's that freedom and that cheerfulness with which the will of man is endued that we behold in David as he pens the the queen of the Psalms. The grace of the gospel frees us from the demands of the law as a standard by which we might of ourselves earn our own righteousness, something in the light of our depravity we could never hope to do. But the the grace of the gospel does not free us from obedience to the law as a rule of life by which we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, Colossians 1.10. In fact, we might better say that the grace of the gospel frees us unto the law. Gospel grace grants us new life. It breathes spiritual life into us and writes the law on our hearts so that the law is our delight, so that our wills, subdued and enabled by the Spirit of God, obey the law freely and cheerfully. And it's that phrase, freely and cheerfully, that that I, I want to zero in on for the rest of our time. Shouldn't be too long. But if I, if I had a thesis, here it is, right? Here's what you should write down. The Christian's obedience to the law, which is produced by genuine spirit-wrought gospel grace, is obedience that is rendered freely and cheerfully and not begrudgingly. The Christian's obedience to the law which is produced by genuine spirit-wrought gospel grace, is obedience that is rendered freely and cheerfully and not begrudgingly. And hence we can speak of the grace of law. And I would submit to you that that understanding of the character of genuine obedience, that it's done always freely and cheerfully, not begrudgingly, or it's not obedience, that has fallen on hard times in our day. As parts of contemporary evangelicalism, even those that would take the name Reformed, continue to miss the mark of biblical sanctification. Now, we have seen, if you're paying attention, we've seen antinomianism slay its thousands. Antinomianism, anti-namas, the law anti-against, namas law, against the law. This is the doctrine that is suspicious of all talk of commandment keeping as being legalistic. The law had nothing to do with our justification, and so the law has nothing to do with our sanctification either, the thought goes. We don't need to trouble ourselves with striving and straining to obey Christ's commandments because, hey, listen, we all fall short. I mean, how, how much do we have to obey? 
We'll never do that perfectly. Instead, it falls to us merely to trust in Christ who has obeyed perfectly on our behalf, and so long as we meditate on our justification, we'll just automatically start to get better in our sanctification. Again, they say. And of course, while we love and treasure the active obedience of Christ, there is truly, as Machen said, no hope without it. It's the foundation of all our righteousness before God. Nevertheless, We do not make Christ's vicarious law-keeping the occasion for apathy with regard to our own obedience in sanctification. And that has been a problem, even in, in the Reformed world, even in our circles, as the mounting number of disqualified pastors sadly attests. And so, as I say, antinomianism has slain its thousands. But I would contend that moralism has slain its tens of thousands. As a reaction against this antinomian spirit, the, the pendulum swings to the other extreme, and those who see the necessity of the believer's obedience in the Christian life curiously begin to define obedience in a way that cuts the heart out of it. Perhaps that That's because they see the arguments of antinomianism as being driven by a kind of emotionalism, right? If the antinomians say, well, don't ever bend your will to do your duty because that's just fleshly self-effort. No, you need to have your emotions stirred by contemplating the cross and and free-flowing obedience will just come bubbling out of you. So people see that, they don't like that. And so what the moralists do is they say, no, do bend your will to do your duty, no matter how you feel about it. Just obey, and the feelings will follow. In fact, some in this camp seem to consider it a badge of honor if you obey external commandments, especially when you have no heart to do them. That there's more virtue in forcing yourself to perform righteous acts that you hate than there is in loving and desiring righteousness and acting accordingly. Sure, it's easy to obey when you want to, but when you don't want to, then you've got to really grit the teeth and clench the fist, and that's real obedience. The Word of God says exactly the opposite. Holiness does not mean bringing our outward behavior into conformity with an external standard. It means that, but it's not all it means. You don't need the supernatural power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to produce that in your life, to produce this earnest desire to muscle down commandments that you hate. You need a strong willpower. You need a strong conscience. But hypocrites can conform to the external trappings of religion, all the while remaining destitute of holy desires, of holy affections. But that's not the sanctification to which we are called. Joel 2.13 says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Don't show up just tearing your clothes in repentance. Oh, it's so terrible. I'm I'm ripping my clothes. Don't, Don't do that. It's not the external that we're worrying about. Rend your hearts. Tear your hearts in repentance. This is a quote that if you've been in Grace Life for a long time, you've heard me share a number of times, but it's just so good. Charles Hodge from his Systematic Theology says, Sanctification 
does not consist exclusively in a series of a new kind of acts. It's making the tree good in order that the fruit may be good. It involves an essential change of character. Just as regeneration is a new birth, a a new creation, a quickening or communicating a new life, so sanctification in its essential nature is not holy acts, but such a change in the state of the soul that sinful acts become more and more infrequent and holy acts more and more habitual and controlling. Do you understand that? That sanctification is making the tree good? not taking the fruit and stapling it to the tree branches? Sanctification is such a change in the state of the soul, Hodge says, that the soul loves what God loves and hates what God hates and then acts in keeping with that purified heart. For it is God who is at work in you, in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, not merely to work, but also to will, to want what God wants. We want to have sanctified affections as well as sanctified actions because God commands us not merely to behave righteously. He commands us to be holy. Now, if that wasn't the case, Hodge says elsewhere, such external reformation may leave man's inward character in the sight of God unchanged. He may may remain destitute of love to God, of faith in Christ, and of all holy exercises or affections, and still do an outward duty. Still go to church. Still read the Bible. Still pray every day. Still read good Christian books. Still go to seminary and do your homework and write the papers. Hypocrites, people with no love for God, no love for His Word, can perform external duties that they have no heart to do by the exertion of their willpower. But that's not what holiness is. Christ Himself says, This people draws near to me with their mouth, with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. In vain do they worship me. In emptiness. He's not interested in external praise while the heart is far away from him. And so in his classic, the the great John Owen, the grace and duty of being spiritually minded, John Owen says, let us not mistake ourselves. To be spiritually minded is not to have the notion and knowledge of spiritual things in our minds. It is not to be constant, no, not to be abounding in the performance of duties, both which may be when there is no grace in the heart at all. You can know things and you can do things with no grace in the heart. But what is spiritual mindedness? It is to have our minds really exercised with delight about heavenly things. It's to have our minds exercised with delight. Tozer said that what you think about God, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. He's absolutely right. What do you think about? when you think about the prospect of fellowship with God and His Word each morning? What do you think about when you think about prayer? When you think about church time? Oh, got to get up early again. When you think about coming to Grace Life? Well, I guess we've got to come to the tent. Is your mind really exercised with delight about heavenly things? So you see, friends, God has not simply commanded us to carry out a series of external duties. 
He's also commanded us to have a particular frame of heart as we do those duties. I like to call those internal duties. And so in Micah 6, 8, we're commanded not only to do justly, but what? Also to love mercy. In Romans 12, 8, we're commanded not merely to show mercy, but to show mercy with cheerfulness, the text says. And in 1 Peter 5, pastors and elders are commanded to shepherd the flock, but not merely to shepherd the flock, but to shepherd the flock willingly and eagerly. And so we do not merely obey the law. We obey the law, as the confession says, freely and cheerfully. So just do your duty and your feelings will follow. That's a confused piece of advice. Because joy and gladness and hope and cheerfulness and brokenness of spirit and contrition of heart and tenderheartedness and contentment, those are our duty. Those are all commands in the Scriptures. The Christian is not merely someone who's made a decision for Jesus and cleaned up his life a little bit. The Christian isn't the one who dutifully refuses all the things that he loves while dutifully embracing all the things that he hates. Paul Washer's memorably said, that's a lost person with religion. But the Christian has been born again. He has been regenerated. He's a, a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The Christian has experienced that spiritual heart surgery performed by Almighty God, wherein he, he re- removes that sinful heart of stone, gives the heart of flesh, writes the law upon the heart, and totally transforms you from the inside out so that you're thinking, so that your desires, your tastes, your affections, your wills are entirely renewed. Your, your spiritual eyes, which once beheld Christ and were blind to His glory and said, ah, I, don't, I don't want that, and beheld sin, and said, which, was, which is disgusting and repulsive, and said, I want that. Those eyes are now open to behold the ugliness of sin and the beauty of holiness. The sin that was once sweet now is bitter. The sin that was once alluring is now repulsive. And the righteousness and the virtue that you once had no taste for is what you hunger and thirst after. Matthew chapter 5. The Christian is one who has been regenerated, made an entirely new creation from the inside out. And so the result of that new birth, 1 John 5, the the result of this being born of God John says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And in the previous verse, it says, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So you see, regeneration births within us this principle of power that overcomes the world, the text says. The world's influence upon our flesh, the world's cooperation with the flesh and with our enemy, the devil, to tempt us to sin. But our faith, which is a result of our being born again, overcomes all of that so that the commandments of God are not burdensome, 
Or not, oh, how am I ever going to obey that? Or, oh, that's what I have to do, but I don't want to do it. I want to sin. No, the, the regeneration which births faith overcomes all of that. And now the commandments of God, of, of God are not grievous. They're not burdensome. They're not depressing. What are they? They're the delight of our heart. Psalm 119. Now we obey freely and cheerfully as sons and not merely dutifully and begrudgingly as if slaves under a yoke of iron. It's to experience the the realization of Psalm 110 verse 3 in which God the Father says to God the Son, your people shall be made willing in the day of your power. In the day, son, in which you exercise your kingly authority to rule in the hearts of the sheep that I have given you, you will not have to wring obedience from their backward and begrudging hearts. No, in that day, your people shall be made willing. Your people shall volunteer freely and cheerfully and shall obey you and follow you with the joy and the delight of the one who finds great spoil. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, that you have now become obedient, what? From the heart to that form of teaching to which you were delivered. You've become obedient to the heart, or from the heart, rather, to that teaching. So you see, God commands us not only to do, He commands us to feel a certain way about what we do. And as we do what we do, if God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, and you give begrudgingly without cheerfulness, you've done your duty to give, but you've not done your duty to give cheerfully. You've obeyed the command to give, but you have disobeyed the command to give cheerfully. And we do a disservice to the people of God, and we do a disservice to our own hearts if we lead one another to believe that we're making progress in sanctification so long as we're performing external duties, even if our hearts and affections are all the while contrary to, the, to our actions. So that offering plate passed by, and I put my envelope in the bag. But I hated it. I thought of all the things that that money could do for me. Things that I need. Student loan debt to pay off. Car, car payment. Insurance. Groceries. Travel back to see family. Gifts for others. And I gave it. But I didn't give it cheerfully. There are people who will tell you, go away happy, pat yourself on the back because you did your duty to give. And it's true, of course, you did your duty to give. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Don't go away patting yourself on the back. Go away repenting. Go away thanking God that He gave you the grace to obey Him externally because that was born of His grace for certain. But go away repenting that your heart was not in the frame of heart that He commanded it to be, that is cheerful. Go away repenting and mourning and grieving 
that your heart was backward and did not love the righteousness of giving to meet the needs of the saints. So you see, we can't just perform righteousness. We have to love and desire righteousness. We've been commanded not merely to obey the law, but to obey the law freely and cheerfully. And so that means that every God-honoring affection, I ran through them before, joy, delight, gladness, hope, cheerfulness, contentment, peace, holy fear, holy longing, tenderheartedness, brokenness of spirit, those are not merely the icing on the cake of our obedience. They are not merely the happy byproducts of obedience. They are the substance of our obedience, just as the external commands are. If God commands me to rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4, I must pursue my joy as much as I pursue anything else that God commands me to do. If God commands me to show mercy with cheerfulness, Romans 12, 8, I must pursue my cheerfulness. If God commands me not to covet, but to be content with what I have, I must pursue my contentment. Not in my flesh, not in my fleshly desires, not in the things of this world, in Christ and in the things of Christ. But pursue my joy, I must. And isn't it kind of God? Reflect upon the kindness of the heart of God who gives commands like delight yourself in the Lord. It's like saying, I command you to have ice cream. I I order you to enjoy dessert. Delight yourself in me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O you righteous. Psalm 32, 11. Rejoice in the Lord always. He commands us to delight in Him and to be glad in Him, which means He makes the pursuit of His glory in our obedience and the pursuit of our joy in our obedience the same pursuit. In the same moment that I'm seeking to glorify God, I must pursue my joy. Otherwise, I'm disobeying. That's a gracious God. That's a God full of kindness to His creatures. Pastor John has said before, God could have made all our food taste like sand. And He doesn't. It tastes wonderful depending on where you get it from and how you prepare it. You can enjoy so much of God in the meal that you have, because He delights to give good things to His creatures, and He delights to command good things of His creatures. Praise is fitting, is comely, is becoming to the upright. It's right for you to praise God, and so it's going to be enjoyable for you to praise God. It's right for you to obey God, and so it's going to be enjoyable for you to obey God. What's all this mean? It means there is no such thing as begrudging obedience. There's obedience to external commands begrudgingly. But what's there? Disobedience to internal commands. There's no such thing as obedience that bypasses or is indifferent to the heart. And that means that the Christian's obedience to the law, which is 
produced by genuine, spirit-wrought gospel grace is obedience that is rendered freely and cheerfully. That's my exhortation to you tonight. Take stock of your life. Do you obey the law freely and cheerfully? Do you go to the commands of the Scriptures and say, your words, I found them and I ate them and they became the joy and rejoicing to my heart. I love to walk in the way of your commandments. They are my delight. I've been born of God. And so the faith that I've been granted has overcome the world. The world doesn't have a pull on my affections. And so the commandments of God aren't burdensome. Fellowship with Christ on the path of obedience is so satisfying that even if my flesh recoils, even if I don't want to get up at 5.30 or whatever time it is and force myself to open my Bible and read, I know there's blessing on that road. I know there's glory in those pages. I know there's sweet communion with Jesus at that kitchen table when nobody else is awake. And so I get up, not because I feel like it in my flesh, but because my mind knows to believe that there's glory there. And the prospect of that joy gets me out of bed in the morning. I'm not there yet. I'm there on some days. We all have those seasons of unusual grace where God is kind to meet us And give us that kind of heart. But we ought to do two things. We ought to repent of when we're not there. And trust in Christ's perfect obedience in our place. And we ought to press hard after that standard in our hearts. Every day of our lives. Don't be satisfied with doing the outward duties and hating them. Or just not being too fond of them. Don't be content. Have a holy dissatisfaction with your spiritual life until you can run and rejoice in the way of God's commandments, until you can say, sweeter than the honey to my mouth is, this, is the word of this law. I love you, and I want the best for you. I want God's blessing for you, and that's it. That's it. Let's pray. Father, would you, would you make that a reality in grace life? Would you make that a reality in, in grace church? That we wouldn't be good actors, but that we would have all of our external life fueled by internal life. That's granted by the Holy Spirit of God. Dear Spirit, would you work in the hearts of your people conforming us to the image of Christ, even in our wants and desires, in our affections, so that we love what God loves and hate hate what God hates. And may our, our will, our obedience, our duties be an outflow of that changed heart so that you are honored as the gracious God who accomplishes that which nobody else could do rather than we get the glory for the self-righteousness that we can summon by the strength of our willpower. Would you crucify and mortify all willpower religion at Grace Church and give us the Spirit of God subduing and enabling our wills to do whatsoever 
the law of God requires to be done, and that freely and cheerfully, for you are worthy of free and cheerful obedience. Get what you are worthy of in your people. You've redeemed them. You've paid the price. You've purchased their sanctification. Dear Spirit, apply the work of purchased grace that we would be a holy people, useful to the Master, a benefit to our brethren, and a light to the nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.